Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. 100 years after Victoria Woodhull was the first woman to run for U.S. president, 50 years after the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote, although some states began to put up stumbling blocks in the way of women of color, 44 years before the first female nominee of a major political party ran for president, and within a decade of Jim Crow laws being banned and voting for all female U.S. citizens was made possible, Shirley Chisholm, a black woman from Brooklyn, ran for the U.S. presidency. Hi, it's Susan. Beckett and I had decided to kind of divide and conquer so that we could cover a couple more women who had run for the U.S. presidency long before Hillary Clinton. So let's talk about Shirley Chisholm. First, let me drop her into history a little bit. In 1972, in the United States, a woman could not report workplace discrimination based on being pregnant, attend a U.S. military academy or fight in combat, serve on juries, get credit cards in their name without a man to co-sign. And in 1972, Shirley Chisholm announced her candidacy for President of the United States. Shirley Anita St. Hill was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 30, 1924. She was the first of four daughters to Charles and Ruby St. Hill. Charles and Ruby were both part of a wave of Caribbean immigrants who had left crop failure and famine behind and also sun and soft breezes for the United States. Specifically, the people of Barbados were congregating in Brooklyn, New York. Now, Brooklyn has a bit of a milder temperature than most people think, but it was no Barbados. Charles was born in British Guyana and orphaned as a teen. He lived all over the West Indies, including Barbados, and there he briefly met a young teenager named Ruby Seals, but he headed to the United States for a job in 1923 and settled in Brooklyn where there was an enclave of Barbadians. Now, Charles had stopped school in the fifth grade, but he was well-read and he was very self-educated. Ruby's grandfather had saved money to bring Ruby from the Barbados to live in New York. And once Charles was there, they reconnected one night at a Barbadian social club. What followed was a quick yet formal courtship. And within a year, they'd been married and Shirley was born. Charles was an unskilled laborer who had landed a steady job as a baker's assistant. Ruby was skilled as a seamstress, but first Shirley, then her sister Odessa, and then her sister Muriel in rapid succession made it impossible for Ruby to hold a steady job. She did take in some sewing, but with three toddlers to keep her busy, Mama was very, very busy. And young Shirley, she was talking very early. She was a very strong-willed child, and she added to that busyness. Ruby was busy, very busy, impossibly busy. So Charles and Ruby made a very painful decision. They wanted their daughters to have a good life. Their goals in life were simple. They wanted them to have an education and they wanted to have a house. But to make both of those things happen, they needed money. And having the kids at home was making that really impossible. So when Shirley was Almost four, they decided to send the girls to live with Ruby's mother in Barbados. It was going to be just for a little while so Charles and, and Ruby could save some money and provide that education and home that they wanted for them. 
Ruby books ship passage for herself and her three daughters. There's one story that I couldn't get enough corroboration on to say is fact, but it's very dramatic, so I hope it was true. Shirley had booked passage for them on a ship, but mere days before they were scheduled to set sail, Ruby had a very strange feeling, and she rebooked their passage on another ship at another time. That first ship, it sunk. Now, like I said, I don't know if that's a true story, but I will tell you that searching shipwrecks of the 1920s made me realize the danger of travel at that time. I always thought it was get on a boat, arrive. It was the safest form of travel, but holy cow, there was a lot of shipwrecks. So here's the fact. Ruby and her daughter sailed from New York City to Barbados so that the St. Hills could provide the life they wanted for their daughter. Now, why didn't they all go? Barbados was very impoverished at the time, and they had a greater chance of working and earning money in New York City. Now, Ruby had stayed down in Barbados for a few months to get the girls situated with her mom, and then she left to go work the dream. Grandma Seal ran a very tight ship. She lived on a farm that provided meals for the extended family that lived there. Uh, They grew sweet potatoes, corn, root vegetables. They had chicken, goats, and cows. I did say it was a farm. It was a farm. It fed the family, but it also provided a little bit of income, but not enough to support them. So grandma had to work as a domestic while Ruby's teenage sister held down the fort during the day. The girls helped around the farm. They were all given chores, but please, this is Barbados. They did go to the beach a lot. They roamed the farm. They went into the village to shop. The whole household was a multi-generational, loving, and from all accounts, fairly idyllic situation. At the age of four, Shirley's grandma decided it was time for precocious Shirley to attend elementary school. Now, one of the things in the pro column for sending the girls to Barbados is that Charles and Ruby believed that the early childhood education was far superior there because it was based on a British model than in New York. York City, where it was a more lack casual environment as far as they were concerned. Shirley, in later years, bragged about her early childhood education, and she said it was extremely wonderful. And as you'll find out, she would know about good education. In a one-room schoolhouse with kids from age four up through seventh grade, Ruby studied reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, British history. Remember, Barbados was colonized in the 1600s by Britain. But she also learned some practical things. She learned needlework. She learned economics. She had morality lessons in school. So her education provided her a very solid base. Her grandmother taught her self-respect. She taught her to stand up and be proud and firm. Later in life, Shirley said that her grandmother taught her, quote, strength, dignity, and love. Her early life in Barbados, it was a country that was going through a bit of a political class unrest. So that taught how to stand up for what she believed in. She saw examples of it all around her every day, every day for six years. Ruby and Charles had thought they would leave them with their grandmother for a short period, but it was a six full years before they could bring their daughters back to New York. In that time, they had another daughter and the U.S. was sunk into the Great Depression. When Shirley arrived in New York, Shirley was 10 and it was easy for her to later recall the harsh transition from barefoot in the sunshine of Barbados in a rural area to the cold, populated, and very urban New York City. Home was a tenement house in Brooklyn. It was kind of a shotgun house. One room led into another room, led into another room. There was four rooms like that, all heated by a coal stove that was in the kitchen. That was the only heating they had. No hot water. 
the neighborhood was predominantly white and Jewish. So little Shirley, with her West Indies accent and her British-based education, was a minority at her school. But at that time, in her autobiography, she remembers it as not being a very big deal. She said, quote, she was not particularly conscious of it. If anything, Shirley and her sisters stood out because of their very strict parents. They ran as tight a ship as Shirley's grandmother had back in Barbados, and the girls were used to it. So it wasn't, you know, it was just an easy transition for them. But they had chores. Mom would check their homework every night. They held the nightly family supper tables sacred. They'd sit around and talk about their days. Shirley's parents would ask her what she learned and Unfortunately, Shirley had been dropped down a couple grades when she entered school. Her American history and her American geography was really non-existent. So when she was struggling to learn these things, she would complain and they would tell her that she needs to learn to use her brain and that her brain was the only thing that was going to help her survive in this world. Her parents, they didn't have a lot of money, but they scrimped to provide things like movies every once in a while. Nancy Drew books at Christmas. Nancy Drew began in 1930, in case you didn't know, like me. Uh, They also scrimped to provide a secondhand piano and piano lessons for Shirley. That's a lot of saving for a family that's living on an extremely tight budget in the Depression. But life in the tenement house was was good. It was a good uh, upbringing. It was a good time for Shirley. But when the family moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood, the first time in her life, with prejudice and discrimination, Shirley was really a latchkey kid. Her parents both worked very hard, long hours, and Shirley was in charge during the day. Papa was working at the time in a burlap factory. Mama was working as a domestic. But like I had said earlier, they were extremely strict and had high expectations for their daughters. (laughs) Shirley's forms of rebellion as a teenager, really radical. They included playing jazz music on the piano by ear, by the way, and letting boys walk her home without her parents knowing. Now, because of her high IQ and excellent study habits, Shirley was accepted at the highly regarded Girls High. It brought in girl students from all over Brooklyn who were academically advanced. There she studied, this is just part of the list, Latin, Greek, botany, physics, ancient and modern history. The list goes on and on. And it was an excellent education. Shirley excelled. By the end of high school, she had earned not only a French medal, the vice presidency of the Girls Honor Society, and scholarship offers from both Vassar and Oberlin College. These are really good schools, but they were only going to cover her tuition. She still would have had to pay her room and board. And for economics reasons, the family just couldn't afford to send her. So she enrolled in tuition-free Brooklyn College and never regretted the choice. Now, acceptance into Brooklyn College isn't as easy as you would think. It's not like a community college where everybody is accepted. Girl students had to have better grades and have score higher on an app than boys to be accepted. And once there, they had to deal with prejudice because they were women, that they weren't as smart as men, and that they were only in college to get a husband. Now, instead of being a minority for just her heritage, Shirley was a minority for her gender, too. She had wanted to become a teacher. That was her goal. She felt that there were very few options for her career-wise because of that, her gender and because of her heritage. She thought that that was it. That was where she had to go. Teaching was it. She majored in psychology and she minored in Spanish. So when she when she graduated college, she was fluent in Spanish. While there, she helped form a black woman's social group because, big surprise, they had a hard time being accepted into the white groups. And they thought, 
We don't need them. We'll make a better group for ourselves. And they did. She also joined the debate society and several political clubs. You know how we all have that one teacher who sees our gifts, our value, and our contributions, and they nudge us down the right path? Mine was my AP English teacher, Mr. Stearns, and Shirley's was her political science professor, Louis Warsaw, who suggested in one of their many long and deep talks that she go into politics. Later in life, Shirley would say, of my two handicaps, being female put more obstacles in my path than being black. But in this case, she thought both of them were obstacles that she couldn't get around to going into politics. And she really did like education. She graduated with honors in 1946, but struggled to find a job. She was not only being denied positions because of her color. She was denied positions because she looked very young. She was this tiny woman, barely 100 pounds, and had a very youthful appearance. She didn't look intimidating. She didn't look like she could take control of a classroom. Finally, she landed a job as a teacher's aide in a daycare center. It might not have been the type of exactly the type of work that she had hoped for, but she loved it. Her gender, her skin color, and her petite and young looks actually helped her in that early childhood environment. They weren't an issue at all. She decided during that very first job that she really was going to pursue a career in early childhood education. So she enrolled in Columbia College and took night classes for four years to earn her master's degree. During the day she went to class, She studied at night, and she became active in local political clubs. She might not have thought she had a future in politics, but she was drawn to politics. She was drawn to what it could do for the community. One of the political clubs that she belonged to put her in charge of collecting and decorating cigar boxes for the raffle tickets and money they would earn at an annual fundraising party. It was the women's job in this group to throw this party. Even though it brought money into the club, the women were not given any budget for the party. Shirley realized how wrong that was. She stood up for the women against the male leadership on behalf of the overworked and underappreciated women of the group. She was able to secure a budget for that party, and it made a record amount of profit for them. So that was her first political victory. How about her personal victories? Well, remember those strict parents the ones that prohibited their daughters from dating in high school. Shirley never really dated until after college. She was still living with her parents, and her first serious relationship lasted two full years, despite her parents objecting to the older man who 24-year-old Shirley became engaged to. This is a sign, kids. Listen to your parents. Shirley ended the relationship when she learned that her fiancé was already married, and he had a family in Jamaica. And the job he had... It was immigration fraud and blackmail. Shortly after they broke it off, he was arrested and deported back to Jamaica. But Shirley was heartbroken. It was that unique pain of your first love. It's such a cliche, but she's saying she hated men. She wanted no part of them. She stopped eating. Isn't it nice to know that your heroes in life have the same experiences? I mean, we've all had that. We know that feeling. But like a lot of us who discover as we climb out of that depression that we're stronger, that we're wiser, and eventually we love again. And Shirley's next love was a keeper. He was a private investigator named Conrad Chisholm. Because Shirley was so busy and because she had sworn off men, 
Conrad really had to put the full court press on her, but she finally warmed to him. She realized that Conrad was different than a lot of the men that she knew and a lot of the men of the time, chiefly in that he believed in Shirley as a person, not as somebody to partner him and support him. He supported her. He encouraged her. He put her ambition front and center without putting a shadow on her of his own. And he cooked because Shirley couldn't even boil water. Later, Conrad would say that he was the, quote, wonder man behind a good woman. And everything that I read indicates that that was the case. He was an incredible support for Shirley. They were married when Shirley was 25 and settled near her parents in Brooklyn. It might have been a little unique for the time in that she was allowed to keep working. Allowed. Yeah, I know. But career-wise, Shirley worked upward at the child care center. First, she was a teacher's aide, then a teacher, then an assistant director, then the director. Then she was promoted to director of a large center in Manhattan. And then she worked as a consultant for the New York City Bureau of Child Welfare. So Shirley's personal life, her love life, check in good order. Her career, check, in excellent order. But she still had this passion for politics and no outlet for her. So she kind of started leaning towards that. Shirley and Conrad never had children. She had the time, she had the energy, and she had the intellect and desire to go into politics. She wondered why predominantly black Bedford Stuyvesant and New York City in general had only white men in political positions. That's a really good question. And the answer? Each voting district was politically powered by a Democratic Party group in that district. It was those clubs again. And the clubs were run by white men who did a fine job of keeping white men in power and black men and women marginalized. It kept happening again and again. Finally, Shirley had had enough. She broke ranks. She broke tradition. She spoke up, trying to get her way. Sometimes she did. Sometimes she didn't. But she was labeled a troublemaker very often because she was trying to shake up the boat. You know how you have to learn the system before you can fiddle with the system? You have to learn rules before you can break them? Shirley was learning the rules, and she saw that they needed to be broken. She realized they had to have proper representation of the demographics of the area. Now, how was she rocking the boat? Oh, with crazy questions like, why can't Bedford Stuyvesant have as much police protection as other parts of the city? She was going nowhere locally, so she cast a bigger net and got involved in clubs. She wasn't getting too far in the local clubs, and she kind of drifted away from them to become involved in clubs that cast a larger net, like the New York chapter of the NAACP and the League of Women Voters. She worked locally to bring a voice to women and to try and overthrow the white-dominated political machine that prevailed in her district. That was her mission. She even worked a little bit with Eleanor Roosevelt and Harry Belafonte, who came in to support a campaign that she was working on to put an African-American named Tom Jones into the New York State Assembly. Tom lost his first run, but Shirley and her team doubled down on canvassing. They, they upped their efforts to get people registered to vote. The campaign platform consisted of things that just seemed fairly obvious to us. They wanted a minimum wage for factory workers. They wanted more jobs for the Black and Puerto Rican community. And they were demanding their district be represented in the New York State Assembly by a Black man. They wanted to break through all that white male 
dominated power. The second time was a charm, and Tom Jones was elected to represent their district in the New York State Assembly. Two years later, he decided he'd up his game, too, and he ran for a judgeship, which left his seat open. That's when Shirley wedged herself in a door that had been closed previously to women. She used her own money, her 10 years of political experience, her years of community activism, her valuable contacts that she'd met along the way, her natural leadership, and quite frankly, her presence. She was this woman. She was little. She would, you'd think, oh, she's not going to have much power. But once she started talking, you were drawn to her. And I'm going to put some uh, YouTube videos on our show notes for this because because you really have to listen to her talk. She had a slight speech impediment and a slight accent of the West Indies, not a New York accent. And she is a powerful speaker. Those debate clubs that she did in college really, really paid off. As she's running for that position in the state legislature, she did meet quite a bit of opposition. Why would a woman want to do a man's job? I mean, it was 1964. Women didn't do jobs like that, but blacks hadn't done them either, and that happened, so why couldn't Shirley? She was elected by a 70% margin. She announced her victory in the streets wearing a red cape and speaking in both English and Spanish because that's what her constituents spoke. She suggested that she could have won by a bigger margin if the black community had supported her more, which kind of ticked off some members of her base. But battles like that were just a warm-up for what happened to her once she went to the state capitol. There, she was the only woman of six black assembly members. It was that battle again, her old battle of the established boys club. After a little bit of a rough start, because like anything, in any new job, you're going to have a little mm, transition time when you have to learn those rules again. But during the next four years, she spent her days in committee meetings, working to get bills passed into state law. At night, she wasn't into that boys club, and that's okay because they weren't inviting her anyway. But she took her work to her hotel room. On the weekend, she'd go home to be with Conrad. It's a three-hour drive from Albany to Brooklyn or a four-hour train ride. In the summer, they had a wonderful tradition, and they went to islands in the West Indies every summer. But that was her life for the next four years. In those four years, she introduced 50 bills, and eight of them passed. That doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, it's a really good record, especially for a freshman. The causes that she championed Well, there's still ones that we have on our political platforms today. They were programs to help disadvantaged youth attend college. They were programs for unemployment insurance for domestic servants. There's programs for maternity leave and a job to come back to for teachers. And because education was so important to her, she worked very hard to improve the funding of public education and child care. Now, redistricting in New York City made her have to run for her position three times in the next four years, But she won handily each time. And in 1968, a position in U.S. Congress opened up. Thanks to those same reorganizations that made her have to rerun and be reelected. She'd worked on a local level, worked on a state level. And at 44, Shirley Chisholm knew she could work at a government level. She'd been a part of the civil rights movement of the early 60s. She'd been a part of the early second wave of feminism at the same time in a very high profile position as a vice president of 
of the New York chapter of the National Organization for Women. She learned to play and win with the big boys in the state legislature and learned how to live and succeed in an environment where partying and chauvinism put up hurdles for her at every step. But she had to leap over those hurdles to get her life work done and prove that she had guts and belonged to no one but the people. So it seemed natural that she would look higher than state government. In 1968, Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman elected to Congress. Wouldn't it be cool if it was that easy? Poof! Shirley Chisholm, you're the first African-American congresswoman. What are you going to do now? Yeah, it wasn't that easy. First, she had to realize that there were more Puerto Rican and black voters in her district than whites. So that was two things in her favor. She first had to secure the Democratic Party nomination. So how did she do that? The old, it's old-fashioned way to us now, but it was how politics was done at the time. She hit the streets. She campaigned in grocery stores and housing projects. She talked to the people. One night, a woman came and knocked on her door and handed her an envelope filled with coins. She collected them for Shirley's campaign and told her, quote, we'll make it together, you and I. Shirley was so touched, she started to cry, not because of the $9.62 that were in the envelope. She felt, quote, women like that are worth more to me than the opinions of 1,000 politicians. And that was kind of the backbone of everything she did. The people were more important than the politics. She would drive in this campaign truck through the streets saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is fighting Shirley Chisholm coming through. And she would stop and she would talk to people. And that's why she had things happen to her, like that woman giving her the $9.62 in coins. Shirley used every marketing tchotchke that was available to her. Bumper stickers, pins, posters, bags. Everything was printed with her campaign slogan, which was Shirley Chisholm, unbought and unbossed. Oh, God, I love that so much. This is just the primaries, folks, but she used her speaking skills, her confidence, her flair for fashion, and her unintimidating physical presence to speak to people at picnics and parties instead of behind the doors, instead of good old boy politicking to get into positions. She was, like she said, for the people, a person for the people. And she won the primary. She even carried the four white sections of her district. Her Republican opponent was named James Farmer. He was a career politician. He was a civil rights leader in the South and on a national scale. And he didn't even live in Brooklyn. But this is who she was competing with for the congressional seat. She was so fired up for that. I mean, he didn't even live there. It was a political move for him. Simple, pure and simple. He wasn't running for the people. He was running for himself. Unfortunately, during the campaign, Shirley was sidelined for weeks with a benign tumor in her pelvis that had to be removed. It was six weeks in bed while Farmer badmouthed her all over. He was running a real he-man-inspired campaign. He was a man. He was a man who did politics. He was a man who'd do politics for you. So at one point, even though she was still weak and even though she was still under doctor's orders to stay in bed, she stuffed her clothes with a towel to make up for the weight, the 17 pounds that she had lost. 
she got Conrad and a couple of friends to hold her up so she get could get into that sound truck again and tell her world that she was up and fighting. Because Farmer had been a nationally visible civil rights activist and because he was a man, the media followed him and really ignored her. They had actual comments like, quote, who are you, a little school teacher who happened to go to the assembly? The New York Times even ran a headline that said, Farmer and Woman in Lively Bedford-Stuyvesant Race. Ouch. But then there was the, oh, no, he didn't moment. Farmer went heavy on the macho angle. He said government was a man's job. Oh, what's up, Farmer? Didn't you know that women outnumbered men in that district? So Shirley went to the women. She went to PTA meetings. She went to bridge games. She went back to the grocery stores. She rallied her female supporters with a battle cry that said, quote, I am a woman. You are a woman. Let's show Farmer that woman power can beat him. And then she said it in Spanish. <laughs> she kicked his hiney in the election. James Farmer became the first black man to lose a congressional seat to a black woman. So in the 100 years since Victoria Woodhull was the first woman to address Congress, now a black woman was a member of Congress and surely was hurled into the public spotlight. Ebony Magazine, Vogue, the New York Times finally learned her name. Everyone wanted to talk with her, meet with her, shake her hand. Even when the Chisholms went on a well-deserved vacation to the Caribbean, people had heard of her. The only one that hadn't heard of her, it seems, was when they returned and tried to buy a house. That real estate agent pulled a racist move to prevent them from purchasing the house. Later, he came racing back and said, why didn't you tell me you're a member of Congress? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Shirley told him why. Now, I would love to tell you that Shirley went to Washington and started to get busy. But what happened is she ran into roadblocks. She was a freshman member of Congress, and so she was kind of low woman on the totem pole. Every congressperson is assigned to committees, and instead of being assigned to a committee that she was interested in, that she had experience in, like, say, oh, I don't know, education and labor, or any of a long list that she had written up that she could help her constituents, she was placed on the Agriculture Committee. All right, maybe it's a stretch, but food stamps, food distribution, maybe. However, then she was placed on the Forestry and Rural Development Committee, and she went nuts. Remember that protocol that she broke back in Albany? Well, it was protocol on steroids in Washington. Freshman members were never supposed to speak on the floor unless they were addressed, and she was never addressed. And she got tired of it because she wanted to do what she came to Washington to do. So she kind of pulled a fast one on the floor of Congress to introduce a resolution for her to be reassigned. She kind of just busted in, took the microphone and said, look, I need to be reassigned. She was to Veterans Affairs. Okay, she said, there's a lot more veterans in my district than trees. Shirley spent her first four years knowing and working to be a leader for women and for African Americans. She opposed the Vietnam War. She enforced anti-discrimination laws. She worked for equal rights for women, and she didn't make a lot of friends on the far right when she supported repealing anti-abortion laws. Abortion was very dangerous at the time, and women were dying. 
her focus really was on women. She wanted to support working women and working mothers. These are all issues that still come up in the politics of the 20 teens, except maybe you swap out Vietnam for ISIS or Afghanistan or whatever conflict we're in. This was a time when a woman couldn't refuse to have sex with her husband. This was a time when a woman couldn't even run the Boston Marathon. So working to support women was a very uphill battle. And battle uphill surely did. She figured that at some point, her refusal to compromise and her refusal to play play politics as usual would end her congressional career. She thought that her pointing out the ridiculousness of some traditions, like how much money was spent on meetings or elevator protocol for Congress, who could ride the elevator and when, this was time and energy that didn't need to be spent and could be spent on improving things for people of the United States. And they weren't. And she was mad about it. She ran her office differently than other congressmen. She staffed it with women and half of them were black. She tried to shake things up when she could. And after she attended the very first meeting of the National Women's Political Caucus in Washington, she had a new target. Big names were there. It was the feminist movement of the time, Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan. And the goal that was decided was that they wanted to increase female presence so that, quote, it will not be a joke by 1976 that a woman might run for president. Shirley took that mission to heart, and she kind of floated an idea to see if there was any interest in having her run for president. She knew she lacked the funding. She knew she lacked the support from the black political community who thought that a black man would make a more successful candidate. And the little black matriarch who goes around and messing things up wasn't the candidate that they could support. But even with all these things against her, she announced her run for the presidency with very little money in her coffers. She had total about $300,000. But that's compared to the millions that the more likely candidates had. She didn't have the money for the nationwide media campaign that she would need. She didn't have the time or the money to travel all over the country. She was only able to visit 11 states. She might not have had a chance. She knew that she didn't have a chance. But her mission was a success in proving and paving the way for the very thing she stated in a speech when she announced her candidacy, quote, to repudiate the ridiculous notion that the American people will not vote for a candidate simply because he is white or because she is not a male. Her campaign was pretty unorganized. It was understaffed and underfinanced. She kept trying to work in Congress as her day job while campaigning on the side, and both suffered because of it. Even though it it was really unlikely, there was still a smear campaign against her that eventually was traced back to Richard Nixon. There was a press release that was released by a source who claimed that she was a transvestite and a schizophrenic and had spent time in a mental hospital. Is this the kind of woman that we want running the United States? At the 1972 Democratic Convention in Miami, Thanks to some backroom deals that worked both in her favor and against her, she actually earned 151 delegate votes. George McGovern won the Democratic nomination, and that November, he lost handily to incumbent President Richard Nixon. Afterwards, Shirley said, 
quote, I ran because somebody had to do it first. In this country, everybody is supposed to be able to run for president, but that's never really been true. I ran because most people think that the country is not ready for a black candidate, not ready for a woman candidate. After the election, Shirley returned her energy to her congressional duties. She toured as a speaker, and even with all her history and credentials, she still had to fight battles to earn respect. For instance, she was at a Democratic committee meeting, and one man was calling all the men Mr., but her Shirley. When she pointed it out, he said, What's the matter? You and I have been intimate for years. She snapped back, We don't have to let the public know it. And that's when she became Mrs. Chisholm. For the rest of her years in Congress, she continued to champion for equal pay for equal work, for good working conditions, for supporting working women, and for good quality daycare. Shirley Chisholm had told her friends that she didn't want a political career. She wanted to teach. She wanted to lecture. She wanted to write. But she didn't retire from Congress until 1982. That's 14 years. And granted, the year that she retired, she probably would not have won the re-election. But that's still a very impressive history. And she left a trail of positive change. Unfortunately, the years of long-distance relationship and being Shirley Chisholm's, quote, wife, Conrad and Shirley divorced amicably. She then remarried a New York businessman named Arthur Hardwick, who she may have begun dating before her divorce was final. But that's gossip undignified for this. (laughs) Who am I kidding? She lectured. She was a professor of politics at Mount Holyoke Women's College in Massachusetts and at Spelman College in Atlanta. She, at one point, shared a stage with Rosa Parks when they both received honorary degrees from Mount Holyoke in 1981. She worked on political campaigns for the Democratic Party. She campaigned for Jesse Jackson in both 84 and 88. And then, like a lot of good New Yorkers do, she retired to the Palm Coast of Florida. On January 1st, 2005, at the age of 80, Shirley Chisholm died of a stroke. Eleven years after her death, the first black president of the United States, Barack Obama, awarded Shirley posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She left behind a legacy of social change, the memories of a petite woman with a slight accent and a speech impediment who stood up to the status quo and wasn't afraid to cause a little trouble to cause change. And you know what? She left us a lot of amazing quotes. I I fell into a rabbit hole watching her videos on YouTube, watching her speak. She's mesmerizing. And the words, what she says is just so powerful. She said, tremendous amounts of talent are lost to our society just because that talent wears a skirt. And then one that we need to remember during every election cycle, rhetoric never won a revolution yet. As for media, I'm going to put all these up on our show notes for this episode, but I would recommend these three books. The Highest Glass Ceiling by Ellen Fitzpatrick. It covers several women who ran for the presidency. Um, Unbought and Unbossed by Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm, A Catalyst for Change by Barbara Winslow. Now, there's a 2005 PBS documentary called Shirley Chisholm, Unbought and Unbossed. I had a really hard time finding it. I kept hearing, reading all these good things about it, but only snippets of it were on YouTube. I couldn't get it on PBS, and my library didn't even have it. So if you find it, you should grab it and watch it, because I understand it is really exceptional. And I have to say, one of her Unbought and Unbossed campaign posters is at the new National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington because 
It's so cool. We haven't been yet, but we really like to go and we love it. If you if you guys go, please share a picture on Instagram and hashtag it History Chicks Field Trip so we can all share in your experiences. Well, this is the last episode in our series on U.S. female presidential candidates. There were so many more. In 1968, Charlene Mitchell, she was a black woman uh, who represented the Communist Party and was on the ballot in two states. So she actually gets the honor. In addition to Victoria Woodhull and Belleville Lockwood, like we had talked about, there was also Margaret Chase Smith in 1964. Patsy Mink ran the same year as Shirley Chisholm. She was from Hawaii. She didn't get as far as Shirley did in the race, but she was definitely an also-ran. There's Ellen McCormick, Sonia Johnson, Pat Schroeder in the 80s. In the 2000s, there's Elizabeth Dole, Carol Mosley Braun, Michelle Bachman, Carly Fiorina, and in 2008 and 2016, Hillary Clinton. So there's a lot of women out there, a lot of rabbit holes for you to fall into, and we'll give you some links to some of them in our show notes and also on our Pinterest board. I'm going to end you with a quote from a video series by the National Visionary Leadership Project. Oh my gosh, this is so good. There's 250 of these videos by um, African American elders, I think is the official title, but they're all on YouTube and they are amazing. The question is how I want to be remembered. And her answer I want to be remembered, not that I was the first black woman to be elected to the Congress, not as the first black woman to have made a bid for the presidency of the United States, but as a black woman who lived in the 20th century and who dared to be herself. I want to be remembered as a catalyst for change in America. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked our series on the women presidential candidates of days gone by, tell a few friends or, hey, tell any woman in government that you know. Spread the word or leave a review for us on iTunes. Susan would like me to clarify that Shirley majored in sociology, not psychology, and that links to the PBS special that she mentioned are at our website, thehistorychicks.com. The closing music is Worth the Fight by Marie Hines. Don't circle round the task at hand Or take a fall when you can stand Disregard the reprimand Needing more than second hand There's bigger pictures to paint More horizons to chase Something better in searching Reaching, burning Bleed in black and white Whims and you're learning, you're learning. Freedom's worth the fight. Dreams dashed with apathy.
There's bigger pictures to paint, more horizons to chase, something better in searching, reaching, burning, bleeding black and white, deeper oceans to swim, unpredictable.